Thank you, Ruth. I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Luke 7, 18 through 23, and if you're fine along in the Bibles and the pews, that's on page 838. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series, making our way through the Gospel of Luke uh, this summer. Uh, We've been sort of slowly progressing uh, through this Gospel, and we're going to continue that this morning. And this passage specifically takes place right after Jesus has worked a couple of pretty, uh, I guess, substantial miracles earlier in this chapter. So right in the beginning of the chapter, and this is a passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus heals the sick servant of a uh, centurion, Roman centurion, in Capernaum. And then after that, he actually raises um, the son of a widow who had died. And, And this text then picks up after that. So Luke 7, verses 18 through 23, following those miracles, Luke writes, John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, told him about all these things. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I read a lot of Winnie the Pooh these days. Uh, In fact, there are some weeks where I think I read more Winnie the Pooh than anything else, such as the life of a young parent. And those of you familiar with Winnie the Pooh uh, will know that one of the characters' names in those stories is Piglet. Piglet is unsurprisingly a small piglet. Uh, He's also quite anxious. You see, Piglet is is kind of the resident worrywart of the Hundred Acre Woods, the place where Pooh and his friends all live. He often comes across as nervous, apprehensive, and sometimes even downright scared. Uh, As a result, he's normally in a tizzy about something or another. Oh, dear, he often stammers in the stories before questioning something that the friends are about to do together, suggesting alternatives, alternatives, and then if nothing else works, trying to make sure that whatever they're about to embark on is as safe as possible. For instance, in one of the stories in the regular rotation at the Han house, uh, Piglet is holed up by himself on Halloween. Afraid of spookables that might be outside trying to get him, uh, his anxiety shoots through the roof when someone knocks on his door. And despite a very poo-sounding voice calling greetings from the outside, Piglet doesn't want to open his door until he's sure he knows who's out there. Pooh, is that you? Piglet asks. Maybe if you say something that only Pooh would say, then I'd know it's you. How about I am Pooh? You are, says the voice from outside. But if you're Pooh, then who am I? And realizing that only Pooh himself could be that confused, Piglet exclaims, It is you, Pooh, and he opens the door to his friend. Turns out Piglet just needed to be sure of who he was dealing with before he could let them in. 
Well, in the same way, John the Baptist wants to be sure of someone he's dealing with here in our text for this morning. The only difference is that the person he wants to be sure about isn't some visitor outside his door knocking and waiting to be let in. Instead, it's someone he's heard about, someone he's been expecting, someone he's been talking about and even preparing others to meet. You see, John wants to be sure about Jesus here. He wants to be sure that he knows who Jesus is. He wants to be sure that Jesus is the one he's been expecting, the one he's been anticipating, and the one he's been telling others to expect and anticipate too. In short, John wants to be sure that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he sends some friends to find out if that's the case. They come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, we've actually seen this sort of thing repeatedly in this series. Uh, We've talked about this before, but that's actually one of the main topics or issues that Luke deals with here in his gospel, at least in the first half. That's because over and over and over again, Luke is dealing with questions about Jesus' identity, questions like, who is Jesus? What should we think about him? Is he the Messiah or is he someone else? Is he the one that the Jewish people have been expecting, the one they've been longing for, the one they've been looking ahead to? Or should they be looking for someone else? Should they be looking elsewhere? Should they keep looking? Those are the questions that Luke is trying to answer for his readers here in his gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? Who is he supposed to be? And this time... Here in this text this morning, Luke records John the Baptist as the one asking those questions. Now, that might be a bit surprising. Uh, After all, if anyone should recognize the Messiah, it should be John the Baptist, right? Uh, We haven't really talked about this yet because we've been sort of narrowly focusing on Jesus in this series. But Luke actually talks about John the Baptist quite a bit here in his gospel. In fact, he even starts the whole gospel off by talking about him. After some preliminary introductory material at the start of chapter 1, Luke begins his whole gospel by telling us the story of how an angel predicted John's birth. And he doesn't tell that story in passing either with just a verse or two sort of touching on it. He actually dedicates 21 verses to it in chapter 1. He does the same when uh, John is born at the end of that chapter, too. There he dedicates another 10 verses to John, his birth, and then still another 14 to a song that John's father, Zechariah, sings about him. And then in chapter 3, Luke gives us 20 more verses about John. He tells us about his preaching and teaching, his call for people to repent, and his ministry of baptism and prophecy. And so if you add that all up, that's 65 verses in this gospel about John the Baptist. 65 verses about someone other than Jesus. 65 verses about someone who this gospel, this book, really isn't actually about. And yet there's a reason for that. There's a reason why why Luke spends so much time on John, why he tells us so much about him, why he dedicates those 65 verses to him. And the reason is because of John's role. You see, John, at least the way that Luke depicts him here in his gospel, is the one who was supposed to go ahead of the Messiah and prepare the way for him. He's the one who's supposed to be telling people 
that the Messiah is coming. He's the one who's supposed to be getting them ready for when the Messiah eventually shows up. And this is something that Luke makes clear sort of bit by bit here in his gospel. For instance, in, uh, in Luke chapter 1, during the announcement of John's birth to his father Zechariah, Luke records the angel who makes that announcement saying this, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Then at the end of that chapter in the song that he sings about his son, Zechariah, John's father, says this, You, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So that was John's role. That's who he was supposed to be. That's what he was supposed to do. He was a precursor, a prophet, a herald sent to prepare the way for God's people, prepare them for the coming of the Messiah, prepare them so that they would be ready to meet that Messiah when he finally came. And so that's what John did. As Luke writes when he describes John's ministry in chapter 3, John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. That was John's work. That's what he was supposed to do. That's what he was supposed to be. He was the one who would get God's people ready for his salvation, get them ready for everything that he would eventually do among them, get them ready for his long-promised Messiah once he finally came. And yet, kind of begs a question, doesn't it? If that was John's work, if that was his role, if that's what he was supposed to do and that's who he was supposed to be, then why does it seem like he's confused here? Why does it seem like he's not exactly sure about Jesus? Why does it seem like he's questioning whether or not Jesus is truly the Messiah? Again, if anyone should recognize the Messiah when they see him, it should be John, right? Well, yes, but also no. You see, another thing that we've seen uh, throughout this series is that people didn't really have the right expectations for the Messiah. We've brought this up a number of times now because Luke keeps bringing it up in the stories that he tells us about Jesus. But when the Jewish people thought about the Messiah back then, they had a certain idea or image for what he would be like, what he would look like, what he would do. And often that idea or image looked a lot like their favorite Old Testament king, King David. First, like David, the Jews believed the Messiah would be a military leader. He would come, unite all of God's people into an army, and then lead them as they kicked out all the foreign, oppressive, non-Jewish powers from their land. Second, he would be wise, ruling with integrity and discernment, administering justice and peace, and restoring Israel to her once prominent status among the nations. And finally, he would be faithful. 
He would lead the people in a rededication of themselves to God, a reestablishment of their temple system, and a recovery of the Old Testament law as the center of their existence and identity. In short, the Jewish people thought of the Messiah kind of as a combination of all of their best and favorite leaders from their history. He would be the perfect prophet, the prototypical priest, and the consummate king rolled all together in one. It would be kind of like if if a leader emerged who was Billy Graham, George Washington, and William Rehnquist all together. You at least know who some of those people are, right? (laughs) There goes my shot at trying to be relevant. The Jewish people, that's how they looked at the Messiah. They looked at the Messiah as the ideal leader who could finally lead God's people in the way that they were supposed to go. That was the expectation the Jewish people had. And prophet though he was, John the Baptist was no exception. Like everyone else, he too had a certain idea, a certain image, a certain expectation for the Messiah. And for whatever reason, it seems like Jesus didn't quite fit it. And so that's why John sends some of his disciples to Jesus here in this text. He's heard some things about Jesus. He's heard maybe a bit of his teaching. He's heard about some of his healings, some of his miracles. Could this be the Messiah? Maybe. Parts seem to fit, other parts don't. And so he sends a couple disciples to find out. They come to Jesus and ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? You see, like Piglet before he opens the door for Pooh, John wants to make sure he knows who he's dealing with here. He wants to make sure that he gets it right. He wants to make sure Jesus is actually the one he's been expecting, the one he's been anticipating, and the one he's been telling everyone else to expect and anticipate too. Because if he's not, if Jesus isn't actually the one they've been expecting, then they need to keep looking. And so John's disciples come to Jesus here, and they put that question to him, are you the one? And Jesus answers. It's just like with everything else about Jesus, he doesn't quite answer the way that maybe John's disciples expected him to. As Luke writes in verses 21 through 22 here, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In other words, John's disciples show up here. They ask Jesus that question, if he's the one, if he's the Messiah. But rather than give them a straightforward answer, Jesus instead turns. He heals a bunch of people, casts out some evil spirits, and then says, go tell John what you've seen. Jesus doesn't answer John's disciples' question with words. Instead, he answers it with actions. And there's a few things that are important to note about that. First, pretty much everything Jesus says here and does here in answer to John's disciples uh, references and fulfills, actually, the prophet Isaiah. His commentator, Joel Green, writes, drawing on Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19, 35, verses 5 through 6, 42, verse 18, 43, verse 8, and 61, verse 1. Jesus' description of his ministry here is a symphony of Isaianic echoes and, in substance, a festival of salvation. I like that phrase, festival of salvation. This is the kind of gold that you find when you read a lot of commentaries. Um, 
That's what Jesus is doing here, though. He's giving John's disciples, they come to him with this question, and instead of answering them and just saying yes, what he does instead is he gives them a whole barrage of Old Testament fulfillment right before their very eyes. In other words, despite the fact that Jesus doesn't line up with all the expectations that people might have had for the Messiah back then, he's making clear that he does, in fact, line up with some of the expectations about the Messiah. That he does fulfill many of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do. That he does fulfill many of the Old Testament passages that prophesied about him. And specifically, as Green notes, one of the passages Jesus fulfills is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And that one's especially important here. Because that passage has actually come up already in this gospel in a previous text that we looked at. A few weeks ago, when we were in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, we saw how Jesus went to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he actually reads that passage from Isaiah 61 there. As we saw when we looked at that passage, Jesus shows up in the synagogue that Sabbath day in his hometown of Nazareth. He stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is handed to him. And unrolling it, he finds the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in that passage in Luke 4, after reading that text, Jesus rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, and then says to everyone there in the synagogue, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But what do we see him doing here in this passage? In Luke 7. He's fulfilling everything that he read there in Isaiah 61. That's Jesus' point. John sent some messengers to him to ask if he is indeed the one to come, if he is indeed the one that they've been expecting, if he is indeed the Messiah. And Jesus' response is, go tell John what you've seen. Go tell him what you've heard. I'm doing what Isaiah prophesied. I'm doing what he said I would. In fact, I'm doing what I said I would when I said that Isaiah's words were fulfilled in me. But it's not just what Jesus has already fulfilled that's important here. It's also what he would still fulfill. That matters too. And that's the second thing I think we need to see here. You see, Jesus' actions in this text acted kind of like a down payment of sorts. It's not just that Jesus wants John to see what he's done or what he's doing. What he also wants John to recognize or understand here is what he's still going to do. In essence, Jesus is saying here to John's disciples, Look, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. But that's not all. There's still more to come. That's because there will be sight not just for the physically blind, but the spiritually blind. The brokenhearted will be healed, the sinful will be cleansed, and the good news of the gospel will be proclaimed to all. And eventually all those who put their faith in me, who put their faith in that good news, will be raised as well. This too will come to pass, and you can be certain that it will come to pass because of everything I'm doing now. That's the second piece of what Jesus is saying here. He's telling John, his followers, and all of Luke's readers, including us still today, that yes, 
He's the one to come. What he's doing already proves that. But everything that he's still going to do in the chapters that follow proves it even more. And that leads us to the third thing we need to see here. Because people had a lot of expectations for the Messiah back then, like we talked about, right? And they placed those expectations on Jesus, reading him and his ministry through them. They had expectations for who the Messiah would be, what sorts of things he would do, and what sorts of things he would accomplish when he came. And the truth is that we still have expectations like that for Jesus, don't we? We still have expectations for who he should be, what he should do, and the sorts of things that he should accomplish. But part of what Jesus is telling people here, John, his followers, and us still today, is that it's not our expectations of the Messiah that define him. Rather, it's him that should define our expectations of the Messiah. You see, the question isn't whether or not the things that Jesus was doing looked like the sorts of things that the Messiah would eventually do. Rather, the question is whether the Messiah and our conceptions of who the Messiah ought to be look like the things that Jesus was doing. And what Jesus is saying here is, yes, these are the kinds of things that the Messiah will do because these are the kinds of things that I'm doing and I'm the Messiah. That's Jesus' answer here. John's disciples come to him and ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? This is what I'm doing, Jesus responds. And this is what I'll still do. What do you think? My friends, what do we think? What have we seen? What have we heard about this man named Jesus? The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed. There's been more, too, in the time since. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? And if so, what does it make you think about Jesus? Does it make you think that he is indeed the one? And what would it mean if he was? What effect would that have? How might that uh, affect or change our lives? You see, that's really the question behind the questions Luke is asking here in his gospel. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? And then he gets to the heart of it. Because the implied question that he's really asking is, and what does that mean for our lives? I'm just going to let us sit with that this week. Normally I like to tie my sermons up with a nice little bow of grace in the gospel. But I think sometimes it's important to just wrestle with those kinds of questions. Ponder that one. Ponder its implications too. Ponder who this Jesus is. And then ponder, really ponder what that means. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, often we have our own expectations, ideas, and images for who you ought to be rather than seeing ourselves as people made in and conformed to your image. Lord, you have revealed yourself in your word. You have revealed yourself in your Son. Help us to see him for who he truly is. 
in ourselves in light of that. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.